The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are continuing October, the greatest month of the year, um, our October theme of psychopathy with a movie that almost seems like it was made to be dissected in a bathroom by this podcast. <laughs> um, we are watching Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. So buckle up, everybody. Fun ride. <laughs> We're going to take a, get real. <laughs> a long, lonesome ride down this highway. I know. Just hope one of us doesn't end up in a suitcase. Um, yeah. I, I'm sure we'll be fine. <laughs> Also, spoiler. You should know what highway it is. It's at the I-90 or the I-94. I think it's the I-90. Uh, anyway, nobody gives a e- fuck. more evil? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Kennedy uh, or the... Anyway, we can... Well, I'm sure Becky probably cares. <laughs> I don't Becky. have a car, so I don't know no. as much about our <laughs> local interstates as I should. So mm. if this was a CTA film, I'd have a lot to say. Oh. <laughs> okay, nobody gives the slightest fuck about what I'm saying so oh, right no. now, so oh, <laughs> nor should <my> they. <laughs> um, so before we talk about uh, Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, or it's been a while. And I feel really weird about trying to personify this movie, spoiler alert, in the way that I keep doing. So I guess <laughs> I'll just say if you see <laughs> If you see a bloody spoiler by the side of the road, now I want to sing it in the guise of Love Shack. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know. Leave leave the suitcase alone. I really don't know what the best thing to do is in that case. But I, I, I pictured that also as like a, the spoiler of a car by the side oh, of the road. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Either yeah. way, don't don't pull over. This is the hitchhiker all over again. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Just keep driving, everyone. Just keep driving. Ah, all right. Well, spoiler alert, we're going to spoil the movie, so yeah. Yep, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) A woman, dead, nude, and bloody, lies in the grass. Henry, a blue-collar guy with no remarkable features, is leaving a diner. He says the waitress has a nice smile. Between that and the shot of the dead woman, red flag. (laughs) Yikes. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Ah. Two people lie dead in a drugstore, blood streaming from bullet wounds. Next, we see a bloodstained hotel room and a dead woman, partially dressed and handcuffed to the sink. A broken bottle protrudes from her face. Yeah, owie, owie, owie. Mm -hmm. Another dead body lies in the river as Henry drives out of town. We stop intercutting between the dead victims and their murderer, switching to real time as we meet Henry lurking in his car in a mall parking lot. He watches women get in their cars, clearly scoping for his next victim. He follows one of the women in her station wagon, but gives up on her when he sees her greet her husband in front of their house. Next, he picks up a hitchhiker on his way into the city. 
she gets into his car with a guitar case. Next, we meet Becky, who is waiting for her brother Otis in Chicago's Midway Airport. She's just left her abusive husband Leroy and left her daughter with her mother until she can get back on her feet. Otis arrives and immediately begins making fun of Becky and being a generally creepy, looming presence. Mm -hmm. Back at Otis's apartment, Henry shows up, guitar case in hand. Y'all know what that means, right? <laughs> oh boy, this guy is being busy. Uh-huh. Felt like I just needed a little bit of a abrupt southern. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, southernness. Okay. Yeah. Henry is staying with Otis until he can move out to California. He insists that Becky take the spare room and he sleep on the couch. What a gentleman. <laughs> Henry has found some work in pest control, a job that allows him into the homes of strangers. Great. He walks up to Station Wagon Lady's house with his giant canister of bug spray. She lets him in. A moment later, we cut to her dead body with a cord wrapped around her neck and black marks on her face and chest. We hear the sounds of her being choked to death. Otis works at a gas station where he mostly sells drugs to teens. <laughs> that evening at home, Otis tells Becky that him and Henry were in the same jail, but they didn't meet there. It was probably from a social networking event after the fact. <laughs> Henry, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, mi- a post-jail mixer. Yeah. Um, prison, I guess. Yeah. Not jail. Gotta be accurate here. Henry was locked up for killing his mama and one of her boyfriends. He did it with a baseball bat. But don't tell Henry I told you. That's what Otis said for the mm-hmm. record. Later, but also playing, you shouldn't tell Henry. You cause... shouldn't. You should also not tell Henry. Yeah. Don't, don't tell Henry. Henry see Henry. Run. Just get the fuck right. out. <laughs> Later, while playing cards, Henry tells Becky his dad used to drive a truck before he got his legs cut off. Also, his brother had a bone disorder and he died. She tells him about her abusive father, who hit and molested her. He asks if he really killed his mom, spilling Otis's beans. Why'd you spill your beans? Uh, That was a little lighthouse reference, but if Henry minds, he doesn't let on. It like cracked me up that he said, don't tell him, and then immediately. Immediately. It's like, okay, okay. The very next scene. Anyways. Yeah. Classic brother-sister dynamic with a few exceptions. Uh, Yes. Okay. Ooh. In- instead, he confides that, quote, his mother was a whore, a whore, a whore. She would, she would beat, I'm sorry, she would beat him and make him watch her with her customers. That's why he had to shoot her. She would also make him wear a dress while he watched. That's why he had to stab her. Wait, mm. was it shoot or stab? Doesn't matter. Becky feels connected to Henry all the same. I am screaming at my television set at this point. Mm -hmm. Becky gets a job as a shampoo girl in a salon in downtown Chicago and comes home with an I Heart Chicago t-shirt. Otis insists that she model it for them. After she puts it on, Otis grabs her and tries to kiss her, but Henry grabs Otis and makes him apologize. All sorts of masculinity flying around in here, and (laughs) frankly, I hate all of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Otis and Henry go out to get drinks, but pick up some sex workers instead. Henry murders one of them in the back seat, and when the other starts screaming, he murders her as well. They dump the bodies in the alley. Otis is afraid they'll be caught, but Henry reassures him that they won't. Unfortunately, Henry is correct. After Otis breaks their TV, they go to a shady warehouse that might as well have stolen electronics for sale (laughs) with the number four painted on the side. (laughs) 
when the fence a real genuine de bears level chicago guy i just really love this actor that they cast for this <laughs> uh-huh. uh he's just so chicago he gets angry at them for being cheap henry attacks him they stab him then shove his head through a television that they turn on while giggling no welcome to primetime puns here just two <laughs> creepy dudes murdering a guy <laughs> Back home with a new, more expensive TV and camcorder that they picked up as a bonus, Otis, Henry, oops, Otis, Becky, and Henry film themselves dancing around the apartment. Becky kisses Henry, clearly attracted to him, though Henry seems uncertain. Becky, no. No. No! No, Becky, no! (laughs) (laughs) I get it. The actor is much more attractive than the real-life Henry Lee Locus. (laughs) Yes. He's He's got very strong arms. Just please, No. Okay. Uh Otis meets a teenage boy to sell him drugs. Perhaps emboldened by the murders, he grabs the kid's thigh. The kid punches Otis and bolts. Afterward, Otis is all riled up and ready to kill. Henry tells him that if he kills that high school kid, people will send him back to prison. But surely they can find someone to knock off, no questions asked. They drive to Lower Wacker, a subterranean stretch of road that people love putting in the movies because of how creepy it looks. It's where part of the Dark Knight was shot and a whole bunch of other things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Pretending that they're... Sorry, this is going to be a lot of me doing Chicago talk, uh, and uh, I'm sorry. It's just going to keep happening. (laughs) Pretending that their car is broken down, Otis and Henry flag down a kind man. With absolutely zero preamble, Otis shoots him, then laughs about it. He's feeling better now. Yay! Uh. Next, we get a little montage as Henry explains what a modus operandi is to Otis and the importance of changing it up. As Otis watches video of them killing an unhoused person, and Henry eats a sandwich. Sure, you can shoot more than one person, but never use the same gun twice. Even better if you stab some folks, strangle others. The cops will never connect the dots. Henry says he's going to have to leave pretty soon and asks if Otis wants to join him. But Otis is nervous about violating his parole. Next, we're treated to some grainy camcorder footage of Otis and Henry murdering a family. It's very upsetting. Otis tries to sexually assault the woman after she's dead, but Henry tells him to stop. We pan out to find that Otis and Henry are watching the footage at home. Otis rewinds to watch it again. At work, Becky talks to her daughter on the phone. She wants to come home, but it's complicated. Otis is filming women from the car, hooting and hollering and generally being the Homer Simpson of sex murderers. While looming out the window, the camera gets smashed on a pole. Otis is mad and throws the whole thing out the window like an absolute dipshit. Now Henry is mad at Otis. Is this, is this trouble in murder paradise? They get in a fight and Henry kicks Otis out of the car. That evening at the apartment, Becky and Henry are playing cards. Becky says she quit her job and is ready to go home. She changed her mind about bringing her daughter to the city and then asks if Henry wants to come with her to live with her mom and daughter. Big yike. (laughs) Henry invites her to get a steak dinner so he can try out his new visa card. Probably taken from a murder victim. Yeah, totally legal. What a gentleman. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. They get home and find Otis asleep watching the slow-mo video of them murdering the family, but Becky doesn't notice this. She's been trying to put the moves on Henry since he moved in and is like, this is happening now. (laughs) Under normal circumstances, I'd be like, yes, go off queen. (laughs) But under these circumstances, I am projectile vomiting all over my couch. (laughs) She pulls Henry into the bedroom and starts to seduce him. Henry seems uncomfortable. And then the moment is shattered by Otis drunkenly barging in. 
Henry says he needs to go out and get some air. After buying some smokes, he meets a woman walking her dog named Dolores <laughs> and seems to consider murdering her. But for whatever reason, he does not. Meanwhile, Otis is sexually assaulting Becky. He's about to strangle her to death when Henry walks in and attacks. The two fight. Otis is about to shoot Henry when Becky stabs him in the eye with the pointy end of a comb. Henry stabs Otis to death, then, quote, comforts Becky by screaming at her to calm her to calm down and let him think. He says they shouldn't call the police. He drags Otis's body into the bathroom as Becky cries. There, he dismembers the body in the bathtub with alarming speed. You ever see a man pop another man's head off that fast? I sure ain't. I don't know why I'm going Is like. Is that a euphemism? Folksy. Yeah, no. In, in this case, he just decapitates the body. Uh, it's like, I can't tell. He's like, and there's like squelch, squelch, squelch. And then the head is just off. And I'm like, it would take a lot longer than that. I think so. Uh, Becky and Henry leave with their luggage and the cursed guitar case. After night falls, they throw garbage bags full of Otis into the Chicago River. As if the river didn't stink enough. <laughs> That's just a little Chicago humor for you. <laughs> Chicago River smells bad. Okay, driving away, Becky says she's scared and asks him what's next. He says they need to keep moving. His sister owns a horse ranch they can stay at, a thing that is definitely true and not a lie. <laughs> he says they'll send for Becky's daughter. He promises. I love you, Henry. I guess I love you, too. LOL, <laughs> Becky, get the fuck out, please. Mm -hmm. At a hotel, Henry washes up and looks at himself in the mirror from the movie poster. The next morning, he shaves and walks to the car, alone, then drives away. He pulls over and yanks Becky's suitcase, now streaked with blood, out of the truck and leaves it by the side of the road, before disappearing once again down that long, lonesome stretch of Midwest Highway. The end. Woof! Whew! That's a, that's a rough one. It's a rough Ooh. ending. Yep. Um, well, so let's do a feelings check. And this is, where we, <laughs> this is where we share our first experiences with the movie and how it makes us feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you care to kick us off? Yeah, this is probably my top 20, if not my top 10. Really? Like, I love this movie. Yeah. Mm. It was a movie that I was like aware of long before I ever got to see it. See, kids, for our younger listeners, there was a time where not every movie was available <laughs> either at the press of a button or in a shiny disc <laughs> and you had to like actively search things out it was the kind of movie that like horror fans talked about in these like near reverential terms and it was like in obviously in the days before the internet or really before like smaller independent films would get like a any sort of big release where you would be able to go and see them on the regular Plus, I was in like sixth grade when this movie came out, just kind of reading Fangoria and hearing about movies like this. So a small kind of indie movie like this, it was not a given that like the local mom and pop video shop would have it on its shelf. All this is to say, like by the time I got to watch it at some point in high school uh, on video cassette with friends, it had built up this kind of like near mythic quality in my brain. And usually when that happens, there's a letdown. Like, I know the first time I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I remembered stories of, like, my best friend's dad saying I, he took his wife on a date to see that when they just started dating, and they ran out of the theater, like, and threw <laughs> up. 
<laughs> Those stories are always, I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, mm. and I would, you know, so with Texas Chain, I remember being let down a little bit the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and now it's one of my favorite movies ever. I'm like, wait, this is mm. it? Like, I expected more massacring and more mm. chainsawing. What's up? But <laughs> right. this movie, like, it definitely, it lived up to the hype. And I think in part because it was unlike any other movie I had seen at the time. And thinking about when this had come out, like, obviously... It's after the slasher boom, but like most of your horror from this time is really fun. Like you have, yes, you have like Friday the 13th and a Nightmare on Elm Street uh, where there's a lot of kills and a high body count, but it's like really quick cuts. You don't get like a crazy amount of gore and they're mostly meant to be fun and campy. You have movies like The Lost Boys, which are again, like MTV vampires, you know, like really fun Mm -hmm. stuff. There is nothing fun about this movie whatsoever. <laughs> like there is yeah. little to, and nothing about it. And the way that it's shot, it has the feel of a docudrama. Like yes. when you look at true crime documentaries now, like they owe a lot to John McNaughton and Henry of a portrait ser- of a serial killer for the way they look. There's no distance between the viewer and what's going on on the screen. Like you're made to feel very complicit watching this and in a lot of ways like this feels like a precursor to the kind of horror you get from studios like a24 now that Mm -hmm. are kind of aiming for something a little bit meatier than just kind of widespread entertainment i remember in my 20s i had a friend who just had a house to himself for like a year and every weekend we'd go over like bands would play the basement and then a bunch of us would crash And this was one of the movies that, for whatever reason, was in heavy rotation. It was like this, Mm -hmm. the first two Texas Chainsaw Massacres, The Invisible Maniac, and a couple other titles. But this was one of the ones we watched a lot. And Rooker is just, I mean, Jesus, he's just amazing in this movie. Just Mm -hmm. absolutely Mm -hmm. disturbing. So, Yeah. Laura, what about you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, This was actually a first time watch for me because because of the reputation of this film. It was one that I was just like, is today the day I want to sit down and endure (laughs) this, you know, and uh, maybe not today. And also, this was one that my mom talked about, like, she walked out of the theater when she saw it because she just found it like too dark and unsettling. And like, I get, you know, I get that. And and um. I really think that it is dark and unsettling, but it should be. And Mm -hmm. that's what I liked about it is that it didn't make any attempt to candy coat anything. And I think even Roger Ebert liked it, which surprised me because he was always Mm -hmm. really down on slasher films of this era and stuff. But I I read a little snippet of his review and it basically was came down to like there there was no attempt to make this fun. And it mm. made you really just aware of what what these what it really is like to see this kind of violence and to live with in the heads of people like this. I also think it's really beautifully crafted. I especially love how it was shot and edited. That that opening sequence of juxtaposing like the the crime scenes, the, mm-hmm. the the dead bodies with him just going about his business, eating at a diner, is really chilling. And it just I loved how much it, information it gave us, without um, like. Sometimes if you watch a movie with a ton of violence, you get almost numb to it. And that's why Mm -hmm. a lot of movies like your Nightmare on Elm Streets, they have to keep 
getting more and more inventive and absurd with the kills because otherwise it just all becomes you just become completely numb to it it's like oh this again Mm -hmm. so i actually really appreciated how restrained it was Mm -hmm. like i wasn't expecting as much of the violence to occur off screen as it did but those crime scenes just telling you everything you needed to know and that really didn't keep it from feeling grimy and violating uh, and I think that that is is what the director was going for and, and frankly, how you should feel. Uh, to me, it did share a lot of DNA with Maniac 1980, which was fresh on my mind because we just did an episode about it in terms of like forcing you to stay with this really awful psychopath for like the entire duration of the film and making you like sit next to them and watch videos with them. And, but this portrayal I thought was more chilling. I think I enjoy maniac more just for its bombast and it's completely insane ending and Joe Spinell's just like really bonkers performance, but this felt much more true to life and to psychopathy. Mm -hmm. So I'm really looking forward to our, you know, to like the type of psychopathy I think you're more likely to encounter. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's going to be an interesting conversation. I do wish they had had like created completely fictional characters instead of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, because I had a hard time divorcing them from the real life characters who these were very loosely inspired by Mm -hmm. uh, in some, they differed in some significant ways. So I'm like, why not just make this two fictional characters? But regardless, this gets top marks for me. It's not an enjoyable watch. I think it's a, but I, but it shouldn't be. I do think it's a masterpiece. It really had shades of Michael Haneke. And like I said, I look forward to our discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing this at Blockbuster when I was younger and seeing the title, which was like very like, it's so weird. It's like, this is exactly what this movie is. You know exactly what you're getting, you know, but it still like draws you in like portrait of a serial killer. I was like, Ooh, that sounds interesting. Kind of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And mm-hmm. I remember looking at the cover and thinking that this doesn't look like a, like what is this going to be bloody? Like, where's all the massacre stuff, you know? And then looking on the back and seeing like the, and just being really fascinated by it. And then this was another one that was spoiled for me by uh Bravo's 100 movie moments. So I had seen the home video Mm. section before I really knew anything about the story which was probably good for me because that's is I think the most upsetting part of the film and so I it really kind of removed it took it out of that context and it like helped me you know kind of it didn't feel as real when I watched it because I knew what to expect um but I I love this movie I think it's I don't enjoy watching it and it's not one that I return to but I think it is really really well made um I think it's it just knows exactly what it's doing I think it even like the the bad acting in some situations I think really fits the story really well you know it just feels like it is exactly what is supposed to be to be telling the story it's telling and that's story is really upsetting and I've talked a lot about true crime and how I have a really hard time with it recently but this kind of scratched that itch even though I know it was inspired by real um, real killers and real deaths like I can tell myself when I watch this that it's not real but I find it really upsetting and like it is it's almost completely bloodless until like the very end you know we see blood and we see crime scenes and I kept thinking like is it that we're looking at Henry as a portrait 
is he the portrait or is it the portraits like what he's leaving behind? You know, like mm-hmm. I kept thinking, especially with the woman um, with the bug spray, like I was like, who is going to find her body? What are what is left behind after in like, in his wake? You know, yeah. And yeah. that's why I think the opening is so fascinating. It's just he's just leaving these portraits of his killing behind all over to for other people to find. And I kept thinking about like the people and the lives of his victims. And that to me is really upsetting. And I think the thing that feels um, like sometimes when I watch really, really gory stuff, it is really upsetting to me and it's really hard for me to watch, but I also know it's not real, you know, like this isn't real, but this movie feels real. It does feel real. Yeah. Like the the whole movie element to it, I was like picking that apart in my brain and I'm like, what is that conceptually trying to say? But like Mm -hmm. when you see them watching it, you realize that that, the whole movie kind of feels like one of their little recordings, you know, and it even, it even has like a grain to it. Like I, I think it was probably shot on like super 16 or 16 millimeter, you know, so it's got that lovely graining griminess to it. And it really mm-hmm. it feels like they could have sh- maybe if it, if it was just a little more degraded, it could have all been shot on camcorder. Totally. You know, it, I, I loved it. The moment that Otis says like, Oh, I want to watch it again when they mm-hmm. were replaying the, uh, replaying that family massacre like it's kind of an indictment of audiences in general that are seeking out not just horror like it gets fun to remember about the 80s it wasn't just like horror movies that were hyper violent but this is also the time of like uh rambo first blood and commando lethal and weapon and all lethal, this kind yeah of- so you're getting like really over the top like action movies that are hyper violent as well and you're cheering on as an audience member you're kind of cheering on all these exploits where if you were to see them in the news, you'd be like, that's horrible. And that's why it really reminded me of Funny Games at that moment, mm-hmm. where which has the even more in your face of like the character literally turning to the camera and going like, oh, you want to watch that again? Like, oh, you sick fuck. Like, I'm not the bad guy. You're the bad, you know, <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's very uh, that was very like in the zeitgeist of, uh, for, for um, sort of a little. But this was a little, little less meta. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that has started to really bother me about true crime is just thinking about the victims and thinking about the fact that they have no more agency over their bodies and what happens. And just like watching that video and thinking about that woman and knowing that this is what her life now is. Like she now Mm -hmm. exists on this video forever. Um, And it just, it's so upsetting to me. And in the way that I find the, um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre upsetting because as gory in quotation marks as that one is, it's also not super gory, mm. you know? And and so I find like the implied violence is often more upsetting. And I totally. love the way this is done because we see the the crime scene and then we hear it. And yes, it's just, yes. it's so That effective. audio effect of like mm-hmm. seeing the dead body and hearing the screaming and the, yeah, it like, oh yeah, I, get, yeah. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. Oh, it's so well done. Well, and normally when I I kind of will talk to Corey and I'll give him the rundown of the stuff that I need to watch, you know, and I'm like, do you have any interest in this? Do you have any interest in this to see like if I if he wants me to save it and watch it with him? And normally he like he likes horror, but he watches it with me and he won't really watch it on his right. own. So he's like, yeah, whatever, you know, but this one he was like, uh, uh-uh, no, I watched this <laughs> with you before not watching this one again. Yeah, like not so, again, not today. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a little true. bit of Corey's feelings check. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I am really excited to talk about this one because I feel like this out of all of the movies that we've watched, this is one that almost feels like the kind of the reason I wanted to do a show like this is to really kind of 
It's like, here, here's a platter for you guys to create an episode with. Here <laughs> a, you go. A veritable feast. <laughs> right. Huh, well, so let's move into our discussion of psychopathy as a diagnosis. And so two episodes ago, we talked about psychopathy as we see it in Cape Fear. So make sure to listen to that conversation if you haven't already. We talked a lot about the characteristics of a psychopath and how they fit or don't, spoilers, into the justice system. And so, Mike, what are we talking about today? So, yeah, last week we talked about the traits of a psychopath and how it's basically it's a personality disorder and not something that's actually in the DSM itself. Mm -hmm. Like it often gets basically used interchangeably with antisocial personality disorder, but it's a bit different in that it's considered a personality disorder and like a cluster of symptoms, things like a lack of empathy, uh, grandiose beliefs about oneself, a propensity to be violent and a complete and utter disregard for the uh, feelings of others and the way that your actions impact others uh, for starters this week we're going to talk a bit about why it is so difficult to treat this for starters if treatment is going to be effective typically a person needs to come to it wanting to make changes they'll see their problems that their behaviors cause them and they want them to stop you know, so for example, if you're someone that suffers from an anxiety disorder and you see the way that your anxiety impacts your day-to-day -day life, like you may seek treatment uh, in the form of counseling or medication or the combination of the two because you want to have like a, a, you know, live a different life at that point. You want to make some, some changes. The psychopath doesn't see an issue with their behavior and therefore they don't really have any impetus to make any changes. So when we talk about maladaptive behaviors and psychopaths, we're talking about maladaptive behaviors as society defines them and not the way the psychopathic individual would define them. To them, like their behaviors suit their worldview well, and there's no motivation to make any sort of change. So they don't see any problems with what they're doing at all. Can I ask a question about that? Because I'm sure. curious as like, so say a person with an anxiety disorder, you would say they would describe something they're doing as a maladaptive behavior. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's a general term we use. Yeah. Yeah. So like, like if it is causing you to, if it's causing you problem in your relationships or your work environment, if there's behaviors, like try to think of the best way to put this with the cycle of anxiety, essentially mm -hmm. what will happen is like a thought will pop into your head that thought will then trigger a feeling and that feeling will then trigger some sort of behavior. And mm -hmm. it can be something like really small. It can be something like, hey, you know, I texted Jen earlier today about what time we're recording and she never got back to me. The maladaptive, you know, but thought would be, oh, Jen hates me and doesn't want me <laughs> in the show anymore. Uh, I would never then, think anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't That's know right. what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's not my right. current state. Of <laughs> and then, you know, the behavior would be, well, I'm just going to like phone it in this week or I'm just going to like not talk to them or mm. just get in your own head. Like, what did I just, you know, or I'm just going to like worry about it. Like, what did I do? What did I do? Like that sort mm. of thing. 
just a quick example for me was I used to be so claustrophobic and anxious about being in enclosed spaces that when I had to ride the train at rush hour to go to and from work, I would sit there for like an hour and Mm. wait for like multiple trains to go by until one that was less packed came so I could get on. And I would sit there on the platform going like, God fucking damn it. Like I, you know, like I can't like, I see all these other people dealing with it just Mm -hmm. fine. For mm-hmm. fuck's sake, like maybe I need to be medicated because this is fu- like delaying right. my return home by hours, you know. So yeah. okay, yeah. so you're saying you are identifying it as a maladaptive behavior. Yes. Yeah, you realize okay. something is negatively impacting your life. Right. You're like, this fucking sucks. Like you okay. know, versus a psychopath being like, this fucking rules. I can do right. whatever I fucking this works want. For like, me. Yeah. So for me, it would have been like irritability with others that I was close to. Like Mm. a simple innocuous statement would be made and I would get really irritated by it and then kind of like verbally lash out and then realize like, eh, this is going to cost me a lot of positive relationships if this keeps up. And Mm -hmm. it was like, took a long time to identify like, well, before I do that, what are the negative thoughts that are popping into my head? Like what is causing this sort of reaction? So when we're talking about the maladaptive behaviors of a psychopath, we're kind of talking about them as the way that like our culture or our society would describe them. So like we take it as a given that like bilking people out of their um, life savings is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something we shouldn't be doing. But the psychopath sees it as like, hey, this is a really good thing for me. So why wouldn't I do that? Mm, Okay. So in preparation for this episode, I read... Dr. Robert D. Hare's book, Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us. So Dr. Hare, we talked a little bit about him in the previous episode. His research has led to the psychopathy checklist, which is a diagnostic tool that is used uh, as a way to diagnose persons, whether or not they have psychopathy. And Mm -hmm. one of the things he talked about is one thing psychopaths will often do is they'll actually say they've done their victims a a favor. One of the examples in the book, he talks about a person he was interviewing that said, hey, you know, this person that I murdered, like they actually learned a pretty valuable lesson about how life can be really hard sometimes and you shouldn't trust everybody. That Mm -hmm. was like, you know, from one of the interviews, like that is the kind of depths that they can go into in order to kind of justify their behaviors. It would be kind of hilarious if it wasn't really chilling. Yeah. Um, Like they learned a real lesson now that they're dead. Yeah. Yep. Don't pull over to help anybody. So that's the first thing is like they just don't really want to be treated to begin with. Straightforward therapy can do a lot more harm than good. For starters, like the psychopath will kind of see themselves on the same level as a therapist and they'll seek out ways to manipulate them or best them at every single turn. So they treat their counseling sessions as kind of a joke more often than not. They will lie at every other every instance they can do it or they'll seek to like turn the tables on them. They talked about like group therapy and psychopaths which a lot of times in like in in prison settings or mental health hospital settings there's a lot of group therapy that is done and it can be mm-hmm. really powerful like even there's like a lot of research that shows it's every bit, if not more valuable than just one-to-one therapy in a lot of settings. The problem with the psychopath is in a group setting, they tend to dominate the proceedings. And what they do is they turn everybody else's words against them. 
So they'll sit there in a group setting and kind of run down the line and go, oh, well, you've said this. So obviously you have this problem and this problem and you're a horrible person at this point. They dominate the discourse. They talk over the persons running it and they basically do everything they can in their power to not talk about their own issues or do any sort of like self-reflection. So they kind of torpedo the proceedings. The other issue with traditional therapy is it kind of gives the psychopath a bonus of giving them an out for their behavior that mm. they can latch on to. Like they'll say, like a counselor will say, like, oh, like in the, let's take the case of Henry, for example, like, oh, you had a really horrible upbringing. Your mother was a prostitute and she made you wear a dress. Obviously, these are the things that led you down to the, the path that you actually chose. And the psychopath might latch onto that and say, yes, these are the reasons I behave the way that I do. Therefore, I am not responsible for any of my behavior whatsoever. I want to put a note in that and say that's a big thing I want to do in the film discussion. I want to talk mm -hmm. about that that moment yes. and that okay. story. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah, because that is a... I think I put a note in my own notes on that too, like his lying mm -hmm. and kind yep. of like the his grandiosity, I would say. Yep. Mm -hmm. So the other issue is your typical psychopaths are not seeking treatment because there's not they feel there's nothing wrong with them. They're not coming mm -hmm. in off the street saying, help me. Usually you're only getting them once it's too late, like after they've um, been incarcerated for something else. It's usually at that point, that's when you're getting to them. So mm -hmm. it's kind of after the fact. Uh, on that note, I'll say, you know, due to my true crime problem that I have where I will still listen to true crime podcasts and such. Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of stories, you know, as much as I am not a fan of our cursorial serial system and it mostly uh, penalizes people that don't deserve it and lets people go who perhaps shouldn't be part of society. Um, I, there are, so many instances of serial killers, psychopaths getting released because they got the all clear from the psychologist. Right. You know, mm -hmm. I think they're really good at if you've been through the ringer a few times with psychologists, they know what to say. They know how to manipulate the session. And for the point of view of the psychologist, they don't know what else to do except write down what the person is saying. So there's a level of trust in that relationship that can be very easily manipulated if someone is really intent on doing so so there were examples of like psychopaths that had been incarcerated that felt like living in the general population was too much for them so when they would meet with the psychologist they were able to basically craft a profile that made them look clinically insane and then they could transfer to say a psychiatric ward mm -hmm. once they were in the psychiatric ward they were like whoa i don't really belong with these persons either so when they would be reevaluated they would be able to use just enough terminology and show just enough, quote unquote, remorse uh, and reformation that they could go back to, say, either general population or a lower, lower security, lower security facility. So mm -hmm. they hadn't made any actual changes, but they had been given just enough information to be dangerous. Like that's a statement that like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, just enough to be dangerous. and. It's literally in this case, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. As far as the causes of psychopathy, there's been a lot of studies that have looked at the brain chemistry and the makeup, and they have found that persons diagnosed with psychopathy, off, they have a different brain chemistry 
in composition than those that don't. Uh, I looked at a number of studies for this episode. One examined the brains of 20 persons with it against 20 persons without it. And they found that the sections of the brain responsible for regulating fear and anxiety, as well as sections that were responsible for our sense of empathy, had both been compromised. Um, Mm. They were given tests that would show, you know, what do you think it would feel like if this person slammed the door in their car, their uh, fingers in the car door? And they're like, I don't know. Why would I know that? You know, they wouldn't have Mm. any sense like why or how would it feel if somebody was a bank teller and someone put a gun in their face and said, give me your money. How would they feel? Well, they would give them the money. No, but how would they feel? Well, they should just give them the money. Like, no, you're talking about what they would do. Like they could Mm, report mm -hmm. back, like what would a person do in this situation? But they couldn't talk about like what a person would feel in that sort of situation. Yeah, It's almost like that empathy is like just kind of a foreign concept, Mm -hmm. you know? Exactly. And this is often how a lot of these, a lot of criminals who are psychopaths, a lot of serial killers get caught is often because you can, you can only get so far interpreting the actions of people. If Mm -hmm. you don't understand how people feel or how people really react to things, you can get Mm -hmm. yourself into a lot of trouble eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a side note for another time. And that's why they will talk about in the movie, like someone like Henry wouldn't stay in one place for too long because eventually it would be like something is off with this person. Yeah. And this was also in an era when police departments and, you know, they never didn't communicate mm-hmm. with each other across state no. lines, sometimes across mm-hmm. city and town lines. So there is, you don't see as many like quote drifter killers mm-hmm. these days because they just don't get away for, for with it for as long as they, as they used to. I don't know if that's actually, you know, statistically true, but that just does seem to be the general, um, the general vibe. Yeah, it's a little bit better uh, cross, maybe a little bit better cross state reporting. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now comes the portion of the show where I mispronounce a bunch of words. <laughs> so, I mean, I probably won't know if it's right or wrong. So, so. I can try to help out where yeah. I can, even though I don't really know what they mean. I do know yeah. how to yeah. say them. So. <laughs> so some research has indicated psychopaths may have impaired mirror neuron systems, meaning they have difficulties with the neurons in the brain that a typically healthy brain will activate our sense of empathy when you perceive a person, you know, doing a a, a specific action. So if we see someone that is crying for some reason, we can think about a time when we felt sad and we have felt upset and we can put ourselves in their shoes and offer assistance at that point. And that's going to be very difficult for a, a psychopath to do. There's been some studies that have found a reduction of the volume of gray matter in the brain systems, and this is the region typically responsible for our emotional regulation and our self-control, our goal setting, and also staying motivated despite sometimes delayed gratification. So that could explain the lack of impulse control that a lot of psychopaths have, like they know what they want and they want it right now and they don't want to or feel they need to wait for it. Other researchers explored and found that the insulin and ventromedio prefrontal cortex fails to activate when a psychopath has to take the perspective uh, of another person. They don't see how their actions impact other people. I had a psychologist friend who always referred to the prefrontal cortex as the seat of social inhibition and it's such a it's such a 
only marginally understood area of neuroscience, but I think the classic example they'll give in psych classes or neuroscience classes mm-hmm. is Phineas Gage, the guy who was like a railroad mm-hmm. worker who got the pull, mm-hmm. you know, the, the railroad spike through his brain. It damaged his frontal cortex yeah. of the prefrontal cortex is a part of the frontal cortex and it changed his whole personality. He became yeah. impulsive. He started, you know, uh, had no, no control over his angry outbursts, stuff like that. And it's like, you can go a few centimeters to the left or right in that area of your brain and it can radically alter your personality if you mm-hmm. receive damage to that area of the brain. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you have limited growth of that brain area in develop in young uh, early age development, or if you have a head injury to that area, those are two things that often you yeah. will often see in these in these circumstances. Yeah, I, I spent mm-hmm. a year working with adults impacted by traumatic brain injury, whether it be stroke or whether it be some sort of accident, and. You know, when you would speak with their families, like the number one thing you would hear is how much their personality changed, mm-hmm. like how they were just completely different people. They were much moodier. They were far more irritable. They were less patient. Um, so you would see that often with with folks that had TBI. All of this is to say that when you look at the different treatment options currently available to treat this, none of them are all that encouraging. The best hope is hopefully catching it early by working with kids and young adults that have been diagnosed with conduct disorder. There's some hope that by teaching these kids pro-social skills or by coming up with some sort of reward system that emphasizes the consequences of giving in to their worst instincts or by getting rewarded for heeding the agreed-upon rules, um, Mm -hmm. that'll help them reduce any sort of criminal behavior. For adults, there tends to be this like kitchen sink approach to it where it's like, okay, well, let's throw individual and group therapy at it. Let's throw medication at it. Let's throw all of these sorts of things and see if any of it sticks. And Mm -hmm. basically in all of the articles I was reading, it was a general shoulder shrug and going, what are you going to do? You know, Mm. there's really not a lot right now that says like, this is something that they see a lot of positive outcomes for. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've only anecdotally read that medication to treat certain aspects of it can help because a lot of times these Mm -hmm. things are comorbid with, you know, depression and all these other things that can only exacerbate the actions that they take. Um, so sometimes just getting their mood stable mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And also this is such a, it can, it can be a diagnosis that either is accompanied by or encompasses um, actual affective disorders on top of mm-hmm. it being a personality disorder. Yeah. And I would say personality disorders on the whole are always harder to treat because right. it's like stuff that's ingrained at yeah. the personality level versus yeah. just being like, I am depressed and this antidepressant mm-hmm. will help. Um, One thing they found is that the more extreme behaviors tend to lessen and lower as they approach middle age. Yeah, really? So, yeah, without really, it just tends to like kind of settle. Like, it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. they don't have it anymore. It just means that they're less likely to give in to their like worst instincts. That seems to be a a theme with a lot of. The, this kind of cluster of mm-hmm. personality disorders that I've read about. And I don't really, I, I would be interested in seeing, understanding the brain chemistry or the neuroscience of why that is, mm-hmm. but I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, and I think the thing, because this, this Henry is very scary to me, and I've said that I was really scared by slashers um, when I was younger, and I know that Michael Myers and Jason and Freddie, like they are, they're probably close to psychopaths, but they are not actual people. So I want to be clear that I'm saying, you know, but the thing that always scared me about them was that they seemed very inhuman, and they seemed very like there was this lack of empathy, and I think that's what scares me so much about Henry is like what do you do? Like if you are his target, you can't reason with him. You can't like, there is nothing you can do to talk him out of killing you. You know, it's going to be like a circumstance or it's going to be, you know, just, he just changes his mind, you know, and that's what saves you. And that is terrifying to me. And it's that lack of playing by the accepted rules of society that I think is really chilling. And when I think about like mental illness in general, like, and, and especially like when it comes to addiction, like Mike, you said, there's like, you have to kind of want to change, you know, and, um, that because it's like so much of what mental illness is, is like thought processes and it's invisible. And so like, there is only so much power an outside source has over what is happening in your own brain, you know? And I think just a person who does not want to change and who wants to continue engaging in behaviors that hurt other people, is just really scary to me. And so maybe that can transition us into talking about Henry and Otis, because I think this is, this movie is interesting in that we see, I think, two psychopaths, but different Different flavors. Yeah, yeah. Very different flavors, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so let's maybe start with Henry, and I just, I'm going to get it out of the way. Michael Rooker is very dreamy in this movie yeah, in so I, a way that makes me really uncomfortable. That's why I just kept trying to picture the real Henry Lee Lucas, who is this like hideous, malnourished, toothless man. And then mm. I'm looking at Michael Rooker, who's like a hottie with a body. And I'm just uh-huh. like, nope, I don't like this. Like, that's what I liked about Maniac more is that they like went yeah. with, they cast an ugly man, a beautifully ugly man who I love, Joe Spinell, but they, they went for, let's make him as repulsive as possible. This gets close, but yeah. nothing will touch how repulsive Joe Spinell is and I think it's important to make our psychopaths hideous and disgusting so (laughs) I think so and one thing I do love about this movie is Becky Um, and you know I know we're about to talk about Henry but I think we see why someone would be attracted to someone like Henry you know which I think is an important part of this conversation because they prey on I think we can have a whole discussion about Becky's choice in men. I think that's going to be part of the discussion because yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. There's a lot going on there. There really is. Poor Becky. I know. I I just want to give her a hug. I know. I want to take her aside and be like, "Let me help you out." Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Henry and I heard the story. It might. I can't remember where I heard the story, but I heard that he uh, at a screening for this movie, Michael Rooker. Michael Rooker went to it but he showed up late and there was a woman who was running out of the theater because she was scared and she bumped into him in the lobby <laughs> she like freaked out which i don't know if that's true or not but i just uh, love what a great story. story i hope uh, that's a story i hope is true sorry i, I know i really want it to be true <laughs> and i hope that lady's is okay but yeah, yeah mike you said that he's just the nicest person in real life right so like the little i saw him like it was at that fangoria convention when this mm. movie got a um, like special edition DVD release. And it was also, mm. he was there for that and Slither were the two things he was there for. Mm, and I he was just he was like, in Slither. Oh, shit. <laughs> he was just walking around the floor, like high-fiving everybody. 
like he's like my friends and I were walking by. It's like, hey, how are you guys doing? Like doing the double finger points, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. he was like super nice to the people working his booth. He was like, can I get you anything? Thank you so much for like, that's great. you know, working this for me, you know. Um, so and he, I, if I remember correctly, he was in a Hawaiian shirt. Like he was just like <laughs> big Michael Shannon energy here. The like yeah. just dude. Play, plays extremely intimidating psychos, yeah. shows up in like a P- Pacific Sun t-shirt mm-hmm. and like backwards sunglasses <laughs> right. and is like, hey, so hey dudes. <laughs> part of what I love about this movie is that first three or four minutes really lay out his character just in mm-hmm. the way that it's edited. You have that opening shot, like that slow pan. To his first victim and then it cuts to him like snuffing out a cigarette butt just like crushing that thing into an ashtray he has like, a couple nice words with the waitress and then the next thing you see are like the two shopkeepers like dead bodies in the middle of daylight it goes to his him just driving around the city and it just felt like jaws like for a minute it just felt like a shark like just swimming mm-hmm. out in the open and then finally, like when he pitches that cigarette butt out the window, like his trash, it immediately cuts to the garbage floating downstream. And the next thing you see is that dead body like face mm. down. Mm-hmm. So just see how he views women in particular as garbage mm. uh, just to be like disposed of. It just lays it out without him saying a word, like no voiceover, no dramatic narration. No, you don't see him stalk his victims at all. You just see the aftermath of everything. But you mm-hmm. know, like, this is not a person that you're going to trifle with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I think is, I mean, what's interesting about him in, in relation to the conversation we just had about the nature of psychopathy and some of the traits associated with it, his choice of victim is is very different than what we typically see portrayed as a serial killer who's like i'm gonna find somebody that looks like mommy you know or has Mm -hmm. he's his mo seems so i'm trying to find indifferent is the word i guess it's like he's just like uh any any hole is a goal like i'll take anyone i'll kill anyone Mm -hmm. um and i'll just callously change my mo because he's figured out the system and what will help people how people get caught um yeah. He also, I believe watching this that not a single word that he says is true, mm-hmm. and which I think is a as a thing that I think he reads people and I think he tells yeah. them what they want to hear down to that. And I really wanted to talk about that scene where he first really is getting to know Becky <laughs> yeah. and is telling the story because yeah. like she she is the one that brings up to him, "You killed your mother, huh?" And he goes, yeah. "Oh, yep." And I think he reads everything he needs to know into that to say like. Because she's well, not repulsed by that. She's exactly. Curious. So mm-hmm. he's like, hmm, what kind of story can I weave here to draw her in further? She's clearly very obviously attracted to me and interested in me in, in at least a superficial way. How can I draw her in more? Yeah. And then she reveals all this stuff about her childhood. So he's like, oh, okay, I can. And it's like, that is a thing that psychopaths will do is they will just, they will press and they'll prod and they'll learn and they'll use anything you tell them about you against you and i think that's exactly what he does in this scene and this is me editorializing but i'm not convinced that any part of that story about his mother Mm -hmm. was true you know i think it 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 could make sense but it doesn't i don't think that there is a decoder ring to figure out this man i think he just kills you know Mm -hmm. 
it's the kind of story that you would tell in prison because it would immediately make you seem like a badass and someone to be feared. Yeah. Right? Like, like, whoa, unstable. this person's so bad he killed his own mother. Mm-hmm. But in a way that also like makes you simp- like makes him the hero of the story and not like, oh, you just killed your old ma? Like, what the fuck's wrong right. with you? We're going to beat the shit out of you. It's like, no, my mother was a whore and she made me wear dresses. It's so lurid. It has just doesn't have the ring of truth to me. Well, and like coming on the heels of her story about how she was mistreated by her parent, like yep. here is somebody who was mistreated and did something about it. So there's almost like this this wish fulfillment kind of story that he's giving mm-hmm. Becky, you yep. know, like, oh, I, I, you know, yeah, my parents sucked too, you know, which and the thing that struck me about this the second time I watched this was like she lays out this story about this horrific abuse and his response is... Yes. So you didn't get along with your daddy, huh? Uh-huh. And it's mm-hmm. just so intrigued. Like, that's that's what he takes from it. Yep. And what's interesting is that he is talking about, like, or she is asking for empathy from him for crimes that he commits, like the kinds of crimes that he commits. Although we never, we don't see him commit too many crimes. And I've got thoughts on that later but like it's just interesting it's like he is becoming a protector of sorts for her and you see it kind of feels like he wants to be that in some ways you know but he also I think just views her as how she can like positively influence his own life you know not as her own person I couldn't get a read on if there were moments of genuine protectiveness or not because I think whatever his issue is like he can't deal with sexual intimacy he can't Mm -hmm. deal with if he sees someone be sexual it pisses him off i felt like that was a thread we were getting with the 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 third victim that we see there's like the woman in the hotel room in like lingerie Mm -hmm. handcuffed to a thing we hear her going "Ooh, baby baby and then fuck you you know and then he kills one of the sex workers in the car and then Mm -hmm. every anytime that otis does anything remotely sexualized you know even obviously any normal person would be repulsed by the things that Otis does, but I don't think that's why Henry gets upset about it. I think he doesn't, there's something like, so I I would guess that if I was just watching his actions, that this was someone who was sexually abused at some point in their life, whether or not the mommy story is true or not, I don't know. I don't think it has to be. I would guess that there there was some history of sexual abuse here just based on the way he behaves. But again, I, and so, so if there's anything there, I think it's that he doesn't want Otis to have sex with Becky and and he also yeah. doesn't want Becky to have sex with him even though she's clearly like putting the moves on him during that whole scene where she's kissing him and taking off her shirt he like keeps putting his coat back on mm-hmm. he's like this no 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 it's almost it's, I can't tell if it's I don't want this to devolve into something that's going to set me set my anger off and then I kill you or if mm. it's like there's it's just an interesting movie because it gives you so many little signals to like pick apart you know right and it's I mean it's really good filmmaking on that level because you can read so much into it and I'm like I don't know <laughs> yeah it's like he's got this weird code of morality yeah you know? right but- I mean, he's very much an opportunity killer he's an opportunistic killer you see that with the victims he chooses and where where he kills him but also like once he gets fixated on a person he can't let it go and you see that in the opening scene where he follows that woman home from the mall and then when he sees her um greeted by her husband like he sizes up the situation and it's like okay this you know could go badly for me and he drives off and you would think that okay this person will be safe at this point like Mm -hmm. it's one that the one that got away and she'll Hmm never know how close that she came to being killed. 
Um, and then you cut to like, he's able to charm his way inside her house. Like she opens the door, uh, they talk and he lets, she lets him in. And so he obviously didn't have to go back there, but like once he saw this person, he was unable to kind of let the thought of them go. So you see that as one type of killer he is. But then you have that scene under the overpass where he and Otis just pull off and raise the hood uh, of their car and they lure an unsuspecting person into their death. Like, And there's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no reason to do it. It's just the first schmo that they find uh, is going to get gunned down for basically for being a good Samaritan. Like, mm-hmm. just basically, like, hey, can I help you persons out? And he's killed for it. Like, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the timing of that scene is like, whoa, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting because I remember, Laura, in an earlier episode, you talked about process killing and product killing. And mm-hmm. he doesn't seem to really be either. And he also doesn't really seem to ritualize or enjoy the actual fact of killing. Yeah. And, I mean, we don't see him actually kill that many I think we see like a little under half of the people but like it's it's the the fact that he has taken a life I think mm-hmm. and maybe that power that seems to be what drives him and that's why I think he can switch his MO up more it's like he just wants to continue operating in this way where he kills people to satisfy whatever whim he has or or whatever need he has at the moment like I need a TV right now and this guy exactly. is in between me and the TV it, mm-hmm. it seems it seems way more um driven by opportunity convenience like like with that hitchhiker it's like maybe he just he, the guitar is one of the few things we see him take from a victim yeah. and it's like maybe he just wanted a guitar and uh-huh. that was enough to you know whereas otis not to i mean and i don't know if we can segue into otis we can go back you know or go back to henry if there's more to say but he definitely seems to be um escalating into a far more typical sexual sadist kind mm-hmm. of serial killer like i could see if he didn't die in the narrative of this movie you know oftentimes with with serial killers and things that and people who you know you'll see things escalate from like usually before somebody goes on to murder people they have a string of victims that they they've raped you know or that mm-hmm. they've assaulted like the golden state killer and all the there's a lot of people who um uh fucking uh richard ramirez there's a lot of these stories of things they did that escalate you know and they escalate and they escalate and then they end up killing someone and from there it becomes a, a need that they have to keep feeding and mm-hmm. otis is the one who was really into the camera and really yeah. into taking footage and watching it again and again henry again seems really indifferent to it like oh you're fucking and watching the video again like oh whatever this is boring mm-hmm. it's almost like it's boring to him but otis gets oh. really fixated on that and he's really fixated on the sexual element like and, and he's another one like i'll take any victim that lies in front of me mm-hmm. man woman child i don't give a fuck you know right so which yeah. i think is interesting but he's very much a follower i mean he's basically mm-hmm. just when he's just caught up in what henry does like i'd be interesting to see if Otis was like tested, like what his IQ would be, I think it would come mm-hmm. out very low. Like, very I think low. Say, That's true of a lot of serial you know, You're probably looking at someone with like developmental delays mm-hmm. there as well. You see the poor impulse control. You see him kind of missing like really basic social cues. And yes, to your point, like a really big sexual deviant as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But like he doesn't really kickstart any of the murders at all. Like he is very much along for the ride when it comes mm-hmm. to him and Henry, which you know a lot more about the actual Henry and Otis. And my understanding is like a lot of their crimes were committed separately. 
Yeah, they had a whole separate thing. And then there's, there's a whole thing. I mean, there's that Confession Killer docu- documentary mm-hmm. on Netflix that basically implies that Henry may have not killed very many people at all. And that it was only mostly like three confirmed. Yeah. Right. And that a lot of it was just stories that mm-hmm. he spun. There was another killer like that named Pewee Gaskins, who was mm-hmm. basically just like, how much of this is because, you know, we're getting all the information from the quote, trusted source of the killer. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like, that's not a trusted, very unreliable narrator shit. I don't remember enough about the real Otis tool. Um, but I, he was also, I don't know that it was such a clear delineation between like top and bottom in their relationship, but they definitely, there was definitely some weird shit going on there and possible attraction to each other, which again is not the issue so much as it is within the context of, of this very unhealthy dynamic. I will say that I think oftentimes people who, who do commit, especially like sexual crimes or that crimes, sexual crimes that escalate into murder where the motivation is sexual sadism are, are often at some point mentored, if you will, mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. like, I, again, it comes to mind is Richard Ramirez had this cousin who, when he was a kid, basically like took him under his wing in a bad way and gave him, you know, and, and who knows, you know, I, I don't think Richard Ramirez would have ever been a quote, like good person necessarily, mm-hmm. but he definitely um, was egged on and abused and and sort of mentored in a very dark way by this cousin and i see because otis at some point does switch in this and that is the moment toward the end when he is left alone with becky Mm -hmm. and he is assaulting her and then going to strangle her and i guarantee you that if henry hadn't walked in when he did otis would have murdered her um Mm -hmm. and then that would have set off you know, Otis on his own independent train track toward his destiny of being mm-hmm. his own, his very own serial killer. And, you know, it's almost like Henry needed to control him on mm-hmm. some level. Yeah. And it's like Henry, I don't know if Henry was like getting off on having this dumbass that he lugged around who did whatever he wanted. I don't really know what that was about, but um, I do think yeah. that Otis was well on his way to becoming a full-fledged, you know, psycho killer. <laughs> Oh, you could totally call this Otis birth of a serial killer. Yes, and yes. It'd be the same movie. You know? Yeah, totally. Well, the interesting thing about that scene is it includes the section with like Henry running up, you know, meeting up with a woman with her dog, Dolores. Mm-hmm. And there's really no need for that moment. Like he's already left the apartment and you could just use that as the impetus. And what struck me on this rewatch was the way that like Henry kind of stalks her when she's walking down that alley and you can see him doing the calculation in his head, like, do I have enough time to kill her and not be Mm -hmm. heard and get away? And you kind of like see in his body language, how tense he gets. And then he storms off and doesn't. And I, what struck me on this rewatch was if he had killed this woman or if he hadn't run into her, like he already, his murderous impulses are already up. Mm -hmm. If he had walked in on Otis doing that to Becky would he have attacked him at that point or would he have just kind of like backed out and been like, Oh, this is between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it just another opportunity to kill was, that yeah. he was already had boiling in his blood? Yeah. Right. Because he was already at an elevated state because uh, he wasn't able to kind of gratify that need when it arose. So mm-hmm. yeah. he, at that point, I think, you know, attacks Otis with a lot more ferocity than he may have otherwise. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and I also think like the way I kind of read that is this has happened when he is has just had a fight with Otis, you mm-hmm. know, like that was their last interaction. And the way I kind of read it is I, I don't know if there's some kind of pragmatic part of him that's like, hey, this could help me out having somebody else with me. You know, maybe we could team up a little bit. And then Otis kind of outlives his usefulness. Yeah. And here is an opportunity to kill Otis. And, mm-hmm. you know, Becky, like she cooks him dinner and she like she seems like like she'll do anything he wants at this point. Mm-hmm. So it could be like that is the pragmatic, like better bet for her because uh, you could also read it if he and Otis were getting along at that point that he would have joined in and killed Becky mm-hmm. or, yeah, like you said, mm-hmm. just ignored it. Um, but I think the difference between the way I see the difference between Otis and um, and Henry, the main difference is like just that impulse control because they both like have like he makes the decision. No, I can't actually kill this person in this amount of time. And Otis does not. Otis doesn't think, oh, Henry's coming back any moment. He just mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's implied that he's drunk, but he kills Becky and he or he tries to kill her and he's assaulting her. And like there's no thought process of him like I don't think I can get away with this at this point and I could see him if he were standing in the alley with Dorothy killing her and not like looking behind and seeing if anybody was there and just going for it you know and and this is going to be me once again flinging around criminal profiling terms that I don't have any right to fling (laughs) around Um, but there is the idea of like more organized versus more disorganized killers Uh you know um, I would say Henry is far more on the organized end of the spectrum and doing that calculus and calculating what's going to work and what doesn't whereas Otis it was truly just like I'll do whatever whenever you know Mm Um, I hope that that sound registered well on <laughs> oh, yeah. mic. Who the hell knows? Um, well, yeah. and it also is, you know, there's likely, hey, maybe I can set this guy up for these crimes. You know, maybe, yes. <laughs> you know, they'll, I don't, they'll think I don't they think, caught him. Yeah, I don't think that if things had played out differently, Henry, and it wouldn't, you know, at the flip of a dime, yeah, put Otis in, in the blame, pa- you know, blame path. That was it a very so- bizarre sentence. <laughs> It's so interesting, and maybe this can transition us into talking about Becky, but Mm -hmm. it is really interesting how he knows how to work her, you know? And he seems like there's a part of me that wants them to work it out, you know, even knowing how horrendous he is and the fact that that's never going to be a healthy relationship. I, you know, that last shot where we find out that they didn't like become Bonnie and Clyde or something, you know, that's like a gut punch, you know, because you can just feel how much she wants that, you know? And it's preceded by the shot before that where he's in the hotel. I think it's when he's staring in the mirror mm-hmm. and the camera starts to pan to its left. And you have been trained as a viewer at this point to know that like every time the camera pans, you're going to be looking at a victim. Like mm-hmm. you've seen that happen five or six times already. So you're preparing to see Becky's dead body. And mm-hmm. when it pans over, it shows her like sitting on the bed playing guitar. So mm-hmm. you kind of have that like, tension that is built up and then you have the sense of relief like oh like i think the first time i watched this movie i had to go back and rewatch the end again like did i miss something like uh-huh. where is she and like what did i miss like do they just why do they drop off the suitcase is it otis in there maybe but mm-hmm. with you know because it had just struck me that like oh he killed her too yeah 
or he left her. There was part of me that wanted to just imagine her asleep in the hotel room and just she yeah. wakes up and he's gone, you know. But I don't yeah, I think. She's yeah, I don't think. I think the blood think, streak yeah. on the suitcase because it, I don't think it was there before. You know, that was just her stuff. And they put Otis in the garbage bags and threw it over the Elston Avenue Bridge, which is now a very populated area. And it would be very funny if somebody tried to dump um, body parts there. But I, I also <laughs> think. I think the fact that we want on some sort of reptile brain level want it to work out is a testament to the normal brain's desire to trust and to hope for the best mm-hmm. just despite all evidence to the contrary because and that is what the psychopath will prey on you know yeah. um I I at a younger age in my life would have been totally attracted to this type of person who would lie and set up this whole persona. And I'd be like, why am I so attracted to them? No, I know I can fix them and it's going to work out and all this kind of stuff in there. But no, they may be mean to other people, but they're not mean to me because I'm special. And like that kind of, you know, and you see that so much in Becky because she's been abused and because she, you know, um, and he has her number from the moment he meets her and everything he says to her is a little calculation to, potentially get her to trust him again i sense mm. some internal conflict obviously this isn't real life and it's a movie so i don't 100 percent know what they were going for but um i sense some real conflict in his character in terms of like i see it as one of two ways if he starts to view her as a sexual object he'll have to kill her and yeah. that's under under the under the narrative that maybe the thing about his mom was true on some level or that he was sexually abused when he was younger and that sexuality to him equals I got to fucking kill this person mm-hmm. um or there's some other thing that we can't possibly know but either way he um there there like there's really no hope for her in this in this dynamic but I think it's a, it's again it's just a testament to who who we are as people with empathy that we want it to work out you know mm-hmm. somehow it's fucked up but it's just it just is what it is. Yeah. yeah also, I mean, the actors have chemistry, so it's hard. They and they're do, both, but you're both the- attractive, so you're like, oh, yeah. I, just, I think about this person's trajectory, and like, mm-hmm. she never had a chance. I mean, if this is her support network, mm-hmm. like, she had a father that raped her, she had a brother that was a deviant. Was Otis Tool. Yeah. Was yeah. Old, yeah. Who would like mock her for, um, you know, her job as a dancer, like, really, like, overtly sexualized her throughout the movie yeah. yeah well and when she says she doesn't want to talk about Leroy at the first like one of their first scenes he keeps poking you know yeah. he won't let it go uh, oh yeah her husband Leroy is in jail for murder yeah. in a lot of ways like her daughter Lorraine who we never meet Lurleen. Kind of Lurleen. 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 Lurleen Lumpkins. That name. Hey, if your name is Lurleen, it is a gorgeous name, but that I, name I, always I, cracks me up. I always think of Lurleen Lumpkins from The Simpsons. Yeah. It, yeah. Just, it is what it Sorry. is. Sorry. Carry on. Her daughter, like, dodges a bullet. Yes. Yeah, with Becky absolutely. being killed. Because, like, with, with Becky. And I hate to say that, but. Like, I know. With, yeah. With, it's terrible. But, but... Becky's choice in men was so horrific that, like, Lurleen would have been the next person in this cycle of abuse like there's mm-hmm. no way that becky would have been able to protect her daughter given like her relationship choices um one b- man being in prison for murder and then the next person she's interested in is henry henry Lee Lewis. Like, yeah. yeah yeah not exactly you know bat in a thousand there no yeah, yeah i do think if like in some alternative narrative where becky would have been able to get support and psychological uh-huh. help 
that cycle could have been broken. I think mm-hmm. that would have been the preferable road to her being murdered and the daughter left with grandma because who the fuck no. knows what grandma's like either. Grandma right. raised Becky and grandma raised fucking ostensibly Otis, you know, so mm-hmm. that doesn't also bode well for the child, but maybe she's too old at this point to to be mm-hmm. as abusive. Uh, she also, yeah. I, I got the sense that it was more like daddy was abusive and mom looked the other way or, or mm-hmm. just was kept in the dark about it, but um. There's some real, real bad family dynamics there to say yeah. the least. It's something that I, you know, I've seen happen a lot in like my own practice. That like a person who's been abused by one parent, the other parent knows but doesn't say anything because yep. they're afraid if they say anything that they're going to get harmed, or yeah. they can't believe that their partner would do that. So yeah, it's it's awful. Like it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I mean, there are a lot of reasons that somebody might not believe their child, none of them good. Like, there's also the blaming the daughter. And I want to be clear, too, we are not blaming Becky for the men that she chooses. No. Because I think you said it, Mike. Like, She doesn't have a lot of options in front she of her. D- right. Exactly. Like, I remember there's a show where <laughs> she was like, you didn't make good choices, you had good choices, you know? And I feel like it's, you know, coming from a lot, like I've grown up around a lot of really bad men, and it's just, it's hard to see outside of that, and it's hard to, like, make good choices or to see yourself as worth being with somebody who doesn't treat you like shit because that's just what you see as normal like she's she also watched her mom look the other way Mm -hmm. so that's what she thinks being a wife is you know and Mm -hmm. so it's just I don't know it's just it makes me so sad for her and I agree I think about like the last conversation that her daughter has with her and just Mm -hmm. like glad that it's a happy one but also that yeah she did dodge a bullet by having to spend any by having to have any contact Mm -hmm. with Henry you know because there's right. another version of this movie where he goes back to his mom's ha- the mom's house and kills right. them all. You right. Know? We right. know that he doesn't have any compunction about killing children, like, really quick before we mm-hmm. move on. Like, that scene that we see play out on the video recorder. Ooh. And again, mm-hmm. watching it framed, like, you see it, the way that is framed, it's not just that it's played back on video, but you see, like, the casing of the little tv around it i think you see like mm-hmm. the the shelving and the beer cans like you're meant to watch like, wallpaper just watching it. yeah mm-hmm. one of the things that is i think makes this movie so disturbing is that intimacy and this kind of like lack of staging um like here you just have this like 13 year old kid like walk in to this like no idea what's going on like it's a, kind of a huge shock when he just opens mm-hmm. a door and he walks in on his dad hogtied and his mom being like molested and obviously under a lot of duress. And then what plays out is like a pretty extended fight for his life. And like the camera doesn't move. It's just stays on them. And it's, it's horrific. It's one of the, it's probably the most disturbing scene in the whole movie to me. Oh, is 100%. The that was the the only moment where I was like, oh, I felt like that sick feeling in my stomach. The rest of it is is restrained enough to not be fully, but you can't look away. You know, it is. It's right. just like that unblinking eye of this camera just on a tripod filming this thing is like, it's really upsetting. Well, and it's like you have been imagining all of these crime scenes throughout the movie. And like we see that him kill the two sex workers, but Mm -hmm. like you imagine how horrific this is and then you see it. And the thing I think is so genius about this movie is like the just seeing him walk in with a guitar case implies this 
horrific thing. And there's part of you that thinks, okay, well, I'm not going to have to actually watch this. I'm just going to be able to understand it. And then there it is. It's in your face. And then, and the fact that he wants to watch it on slow-mo, I think is almost more disturbing to me. And when they, he walks in and he's just asleep with it Mm -hmm. on in Mm slow-mo, it's like, Oh, it's That's just his comfort so horror. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, it's it's disgusting. It's it's, it's it is, yeah, but it's really, effective and it needs to be. Like I feel like that's what it makes the point, you know. And I, I love that as a filmmaking choice to be like, no, we're not going to show any extended violent scenes. So everything's going to be either really quick or suggested, but then leading up to this uh-huh. home video version you know thing it's it's the most pitch perfect way to like shove it down your throat and again speaking to the conceptual gesture of shaming the audience a little bit Mm -hmm. you know it's like you know it's it's just perfectly crafted because another filmmaker would do something like that with all of the crime scenes you know exactly it would become like sinister or something which i love but is a totally different type of movie where it's like let's see what the next creepy video is (laughs) exactly Uh, you know this is just like just brutal 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 Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's like the less is more thing Mm -hmm. okay the the only other thing i really want to mention is one of the other things that terrifies me is that there is no law enforcement in this movie at all there is his uh parole guy Who's just like, okay, we'll see if we can help you out. Which, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. He is assuming the best intentions of Otis. But it just, it's so chilling how they are able to operate with not a whole lot of thought Mm -hmm. into covering everything up and just completely getting away with everything. Well, Chicago, Chicago in the eighties, much like Chicago. Now the cops were too busy, um, like beating the shit or or harassing uh, the homeless people on lower Wacker Mm. that, you know, that were just a few, uh, uh, you know, around the bend from where that guy was getting shot or just like harassing black kids for selling weed. I can tell you this as someone that grew up in Chicago. So uh, that, and you know what? Very little has changed. So mm. it's just the way they're able to operate in plain sight and, mm-hmm. you know, just keep, keep on swimming like those sharks, you know? Yep. Um, yeah. Well, is there anything else we want to talk about before we move on? I don't think so. I feel like we got, you know, and, and the only thing here is uh, just, again, those just to note and hammer home the psychopathic traits that Henry exhibits. I think mm-hmm. you noted them all here, Mike, as lying, superficial charm, grandiose sense of importance and intelligence. I think there's so many examples of that. Like it really is the most picture perfect depiction of a of just the the glib shell mm-hmm. of humanity mm-hmm. that is psychopathy in essence. I think it's just such a wonderful writing meets a wonderful performance meets really subtle smart directorial choices yeah makes for a perfect depiction of psychopathy totally yeah very uncomfortable to watch but just really really well done um well all right so let's um as we're kind of winding down let's briefly mention any other mental health topics we see in this movie um we're not going to dive into them but we just like to mention things when we see them and i would say maybe codependency there's some elements there with becky Mm -hmm. um and sexual assault or sexual trauma childhood trauma is there anything else we want to mention those are the big ones. Yeah, (laughs) i mean there's a lot and they're all really interconnected also in this Yeah. And I like kind of looking at psychopathy. I feel like I have more of an understanding of it's not necessarily one thing. It's kind of a, a, you know, behavioral pattern, you know. 
So now let's briefly mention any other movies we see this type of psychopathy in. We're not going to dive into them, but in case you want more of this. um, (laughs) (laughs) So I said Maniac, which um, we have talked extensively about. So check out that episode. And I also said the Poughkeepsie tapes. And the thing that especially made me think about that is just the way the killer in that movie manipulates law enforcement by like changing his MO and like dropping body parts across state lines. And, and I'll say like, that is a very upsetting movie. It's probably more upsetting than Henry Porter of a serial killer. So just know that going in, but I, I enjoy it. I don't know if enjoy is the right word. Yeah. Appreciate. (laughs) I appreciate it. Yes. There you go. And the other two are, are that I wanted to mention or I already referenced funny games, but there's another uh, Michael Haneke movie named Benny's video. That's all about Mm -hmm. a young budding killer who likes to videotape his crimes and is obsessed with videotaping things. Um, yeah. So that's a, just another very on the nose. I feel like this has a lot of DNA in common with Michael Haneke movies. Yeah. Yeah. I look at like movies like there was, um, I want to say it was uh bereavement, which was the follow up to Malvolent, which was like a movie about a budding serial killer. Uh, like a boy gets kidnapped by a serial killer and it's, pretty intense and mm-hmm. then there's one called the boy uh not the one that is with about the doll the creepy puppet no <laughs> okay. it, it was part of a planned trilogy um that was going to follow like the evolution of a serial killer as like a young boy uh and then into like young adulthood and then actual adulthood and i don't think the other two parts ever came to be but like the first part of it with the kid i think rain wilson is part of it he kind of mentors mm. The kid, Mm -hmm. like, that's another one I would take a look at as well. Hmm. And I want to shout out, um, we've had Dax Bobbin and Mary Beth McAndrews on this podcast, but they have another podcast called Watched Once Never Again that has episodes on some of these more extreme horror movies, specifically Funny Games and Benny's Video. Um, and if and Poughkeepsie tapes actually so if you are curious about these but you don't want to actually watch them check that out <laughs> which yeah, I, I love that podcast for that reason because there's a lot of movies where I'm like not no not today but I, yep. I want to know everything <laughs> yeah well and speaking of I just watched Eden Lake because they did an episode on it and whoo I've heard that's another one that's on my list of eh, I don't know about that one you know I have yeah. never seen it for that reason you got to so. be ready for it I mean yeah. I thought it was good and well done but yeah I, I you know the only thing I knew about it was that they had a video, an episode on it. It's like, mm-hmm. well, all right. Um, and speaking of all of this down, down lifting, down stomping, um, and now it's time <laughs> down pushing. For, <laughs> right, yeah. Now it's time for an uplifting moment. we share any grounding or coping techniques and any self-care that have been particularly effective for us. Grounding and coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through the tough days and tough moments. And self-care is anything that makes us feel good or feel better. And I have had an up and down week. It's been, mm, I don't know. I, I can't remember if I've talked about this before, but I have recently actually gotten an OCD diagnosis. So I've kind of been figuring that out and trying to kind of wrap my brain around it. And I've been listening to a book called um, Because We Are Bad, which is about somebody, a girl who has has that. And it's just a different perspective than I think the constant hand washing, which I think is what most people understand OCD as being. Um, And I'm still trying to figure out, like I just kind of am barely dipping my toe into figuring out what it actually is and means for me. But I, one of the things that's been helping 
So I kept a little journal with an arm wrench of my desk. And so whenever I start to feel like I can't get this thing out of my head, I can grab it and just write for the page. And mm-hmm. so that has been helping me a little bit. And, you know, stay tuned, I guess, for maybe more updates about anything else I find that helps. So, yep. So that's mine. Yeah, I don't really have much this week. Just it's been a really long week. And yeah, for the record, there we we're go. recording this on a Monday, so for the record, yeah. recording it after a after a long weekend. It's just like the previous week was a really long week. Yeah, mm-hmm. I get you. Yeah, I do feel like time these days. Everything is just one ongoing week that never mm-hmm. ends. So, <laughs> yep, that was a cackle of despair. Um, <laughs> oh, my favorite cackle. Yeah, I guess I'm just trying. I guess I'll say there's like one phrase that popped into my head at one point when I had like a five minutes of not feeling like shit and then I started to feel bad because I was feeling not like shit and the phrase that I want to like make into some kind of text art or something which is like enjoy it's it's okay to enjoy today don't Mm. worry tomorrow's gonna suck or something like that (laughs) Uh uh-huh just because I think I have a tendency to live so much in the negative or or you know, be aware of all the suffering in the world at the t- all the time. And that's all I can focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I find those little moments of joy, whether it's watching something um, or laughing at something, just reminding myself that it's okay to not be unhappy at that one moment. Because don't worry, mm-hmm. it's the, the bad feelings are going to come rushing <laughs> back in, you know. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of wanted to to make that make that phrase into some kind of representative art because um it's just one of those things I need to remind myself of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of like mantra that I think could actually I could see myself actually like believing, you know. Exactly. Cuz I, I I have a real hard time with like overly positive mantras mm-hmm. or thing, you know, remind mm-hmm. that kind of positive thinking stuff. It's like if it's not grounded in something that feels true to me, I, I don't yeah. I don't buy it, you know, and I don't think Same. that I, I can ever get past my propensity for negative thinking because I'm a depressive person and I've just lived the life that I have. But I think it's mm-hmm. just finding that little glimmer for me is 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 good. Yeah. Well, we want to hear from you. Have you ever painted a portrait? What is your favorite serial killer and what movie makes you I'm sorry. What's your favorite serial? <laughs> I was like, excuse me? <laughs> What's your favorite cereal? Yes, yes. For the record, I don't want to know what your favorite cereal killer is. Um, that's a whole nother conversation for another day. It <laughs> um, just made or- me think of the cereal convention from the Sandman comic books where they spell it cereal, but then it's actually a convention for cereal killers. Anyway, that's like... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, or just what's on your mind. And you can answer these questions and more by following us on socials at PsychoAPod. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group, which is a private and moderated space to share about the things we talk about on the episodes or anything else that might be on our mind. And you can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And if you have a spare moment, please leave us a rate and review on Apple iTunes. It really helps other people find the pod and it makes us feel good. Thank you to those who have already left us reviews. It really, really means a lot to us. And our homework question for the week is, hmm, well, you know what? Maybe we could do a double because I kind of want to know what your favorite cereal is now. (laughs) Throw that Um, one out midweek, you know, why not? Right, yeah. But our question, our official question is, what's the worst road trip you've ever been on? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Hopefully not as bad as anything that happens in this movie, but you never know. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. What kind of cereal did you eat on it? Sorry. Now that word is just in my head now. Now I want cereal. Um, I know. I love it. The good kind of cereal. Um, so what are we watching next? Well, next up for us is a comfort horror movie. We are going to be joined by Megan Navarro from Bloody Disgusting to talk about The Thing. Yay! Yay! I know, I'm very excited. <laughs> Snow horror is just my jam, and Kurt Russell is also my jam, so... Um, yay. Uh, and if you want even more of us, Mike, what is going on in the world of Patreon? Sure. So you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com psychoanalysis podcast. Uh, next week, we're going to be recording a couple things for the patron page. I think we're going to be doing midnight mass. We're going to, as our bonus show Ooh. for everybody kind of doing our thoughts on the Mike Flanagan limited edition Netflix series going to be interesting because i think our views are going to be like all over the place on it if you like <laughs> monologues then do we have a show for you <laughs> you know or if you like everything said in the beat of slam poetry from the 1990s <laughs> everything can be slam poetry if yes. you say it like this it's, it's still really fucking good yeah most of it yeah. is really good too so we have that we have our medicine chest where we give our picks um so yeah, become a patron today. Uh, next month's topic on childhood development was given to us by one of our patrons, mm. Nicole. And we're going to be covering the movie she chose in Ginger Snap. So Great. you can become a go to our patron page today. Find out how you can do that. And I am wicked running out of steam tonight. So I'm <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's it okay. Short. Sometimes yeah. it's just best to say, that's all I got. I'm backing out of this sentence. And then you make yep. the truck backing up noise and, and then you're good. Mm -hmm. beep, 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 beep. Well, and so, <laughs> Mike, where can we find you online? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. Yeah. Find me over there. Come follow me. Say hello. I'm usually more awake. There we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just we... realized I have to come up with a joke for this movie oh, and my username, no, which I'm. You don't have to. You could just say. I've backed myself you. into this corner and I'm going to die here. <laughs> 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 uh, you can find me on Twitter at underalls, U N D E R A L L S, much like whatever form of underwear was popular in the mid 1980s, which is when there this movie takes place. Definitely not going to make a joke about any of the underwear seen in the film because it's all bad. Yep. That's at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S on Twitter. That's where you can find me and occasionally on the Losers Club and Halloweenies podcasts as well, usually on the Patreon for Losers Club. So if you want more of me, you got to pay pay for it over there. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, baby. Um, uh, just make it really weird. I, you know, why not? I made it weird also. So together <laughs> it cancels each other out. That's true. Yes. Um, and you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the socials. And you can also find me hosting the Losers Club podcast. I'm continuing the archival series. And this month we are doing one of the original short stories that inspired the crate in creep show so i'm super excited about that and then laura and i are going to be on a commentary together i'm sorry a commentary Com together so excited about that you can also find me i just did a guest episode of um the certified forgotten podcast with matt and matt who have both done previous episodes and the movie i talked about was eat me which uh if you like heavy movies like henry portrait of a serial killer 
check out Eat Me because woo, it's a oh, lot. Excellent. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's where you can find me. And you can find me on the White Ladies in Crisis podcast where we just dropped our episode on the babysitter seduction. Um, and so yeah, that's me and just writing and being around and being weird. And that's our episode on Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Thank you so much for joining us for this heavy episode, but I think I really enjoyed this conversation and tackling this one. Uh, please make sure to take care of yourself and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all, all out of, of bubblegum. Bubble gum. Bubble gum.